Chapter Fifteen of the Countess of Charny by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bloodstains. For a space, the Swiss might believe that they had dealt with an army and wiped it off the earth. They had slain nearly four hundred men in the royal yard and almost two hundred in the carousel. Seven guns were the spoils. As far as they could see, no foes were in sight. One small, isolated battery, planted on the terrace of a house facing the Swiss guardhouse, continued its fire without their being able to silence it. As they believed they had suppressed the insurrection, they were taking measures to finish with this battery at any cost, when they heard on the water-side the rolling of drums, and the much more awful rolling of artillery over the stones. This was the army which the king was watching through his spy-glass from the Louvre gallery. At the same time, the rumor spread that the king had quitted the palace and had taken refuge in the House of Representatives. It is hard to tell the effect produced by this news, even on the most firm adherents. The monarch, who had promised to die at his royal post, deserting it and passing over to the enemy or at least surrendering without striking a blow. Thereupon, the National Guards regarded themselves as released from their oath, and almost all withdrew. Several noblemen followed them, thinking it foolish to die for a cause which acknowledged itself lost. Alone the Swiss remained, somber and silent, the slaves of discipline. From the top of the Flora Terrace, and the Louvre gallery windows, could be seen coming those heroic working men whom no army had ever resisted, and who had in one day brought low the Bastille, though it had been taking root during four centuries. These assailants had their plan. Believing the king in his castle, they sought to encompass him so as to take him in it. The column on the left bank had orders to get in by the river gates, that coming down St. Honore Street, to break in the Fouillance gate, while the column on the right bank were to attack it in front, led by Vesterman, with Santerre and Belay under his orders. The last suddenly poured in by all the small entrances on the carousel, singing the It Shall Go On. The Marseille men were in the lead, dragging in their midst two four-pounders loaded with grape-shot. About two hundred Swiss were ranged in order of battle on Carousel Square. Straight to them marched the insurgents. As the Swiss leveled their muskets, they opened their ranks and fired the pieces. The soldiers discharged their guns, but they immediately fell back to the palace, leaving some thirty dead and wounded on the pavement. Thereupon the rebels, headed by the Breton and Marseille Federals, rushed on the Tuileries, capturing the two yards, the royal in the center, where there were so many dead, and the princes near the river and the flora restaurant. Belay had wished to fight where Petou fell, with a hope that he might be only wounded so that he might do him the good turn he owed for picking him up on the parade ground. So he was one of the first to enter the center court. Such was the reek of blood that one might believe one was in the shambles. It rose from the heap of corpses visible as a smoke in some places. This sight and stench 
exasperated the attackers who hurled themselves on the palace. Besides, they could not have hung back had they wished, for they were shoved ahead by the masses incessantly spouted forth by the narrow doors of the carousel. But we hasten to say that, though the front of the pile resembled a frame of fireworks in a display, none had the idea of flight. Nevertheless, once inside the central yard, the insurgents, like those in whose gore they slipped, were caught between two fires, that from the clock entrance and from the double row of barracks. The first thing to do was stop the latter. The Marseillais threw themselves at the buildings like mad dogs on a brazier, but they could not demolish a wall with hands. They called for picks and crows. Belay asked for torpedoes. Vestiman knew that his lieutenant had the right idea, and he had petards made. At the risk of having these cannon cartridges fired in their hands, the Marseilles men carried them with the matches lighted and flung them into the apertures. The woodwork was soon set aflame by these grenades, and the defenders were obliged to take refuge under the stairs. Here the fighting went on with steel to steel and shot for shot. Suddenly, Belay felt hands from behind seize him, and he wheeled round, thinking he had an enemy to grapple with. But he uttered a cry of delight. It was Pitou. But he was pretty hard to identify, for he was smothered in blood from head to foot. But he was safe and sound, and without a single wound. When he saw the Swiss muskets leveled, he had called out for all to drop flat, and he had set the example. But his followers had not time to act like him. Like a monstrous scythe, the fusillade had swept along at breast height and laid two-thirds of the human field, another volley bending and breaking the remainder. Patou was literally buried beneath the swath and bathed by the warm and nauseating stream. Despite the profoundly disagreeable feeling, Patou resolved not to make any move while bathed in the blood of the bodies stifling him and to wait for a favorable time to show tokens of life. He had to wait for over an hour, and every minute seemed an hour, but he judged he had the right cue when he heard his side's shouts of victory, and Belay's voice among the many calling him. Thereupon, like the titan under the mountain, he shook off the mound of carcasses covering him, and ran to press Belay to his heart on recognizing him, without thinking that he might soil his clothes whichever way he took him. A Swiss volley, which sent a dozen men to the ground, recalled them to the gravity of the situation. Two thousand yards of buildings were burning on the sides of the central court. It was sultry weather, without the least breath. Like a dome of lead, the smoke of the fire and powder pressed on the combatants. The smoke filled up the palace entrances. Each window flamed, but the front was sheeted in smoke. No one could tell who delivered death or who received it. Pitou and Belay, with the Marseillais at the fore, pushed through the vapor into the vestibule. Here they met a wall of bayonets. The Swiss! The Swiss commenced their retreat, a heroic one, leaving a rank of dead on each step and the battalion most slowly retiring. Forty-eight dead were counted that evening on those stairs. Suddenly, the cry rang through the rooms and corridors. Order of the king! The Swiss will cease firing! 
It was two in the afternoon. The following had happened in the house to lead to the order proclaimed in the Tuileries, one with the double advantage of lessening the assailant's exasperation and covering the vanquished with honor. As the doors were closing behind the queen, but still while she could catch a glimpse of the bars, bayonets, and pikes menacing Charny, she had screamed and held her hands out toward the opening. But dragged away by her companions, at the same time by her maternal instinct, she had to enter the assembly hall. There she had the great relief afforded her of seeing her son, seated on the speaker's desk. The man who had carried him there waved his red cap triumphantly over the boy's head and shouted gladly, "'I have saved the son of my master! Long live the Dauphin!' But a sudden revulsion of feeling made Marie Antoinette recur to Charny. "'Gentlemen,' she said, "'one of my bravest officers, most devoted of followers, has been left outside the door in danger of death.' I beg succor for him. Five or six members sprung away at the appeal. The king, the queen, and the rest of the royal family with their attendants proceeded to the seats intended for the cabinet officers and took places there. The assembly received them standing not from etiquette, but the respect misfortune compelled. Before sitting down, the king raised his hand to intimate that he wished to speak. I came here to prevent a great crime, he said in the silence. I thought I could not be in safety anywhere else. Sire, returned Vergniaud, who presided, you may rely on the firmness of the National Assembly. Its members are sworn to die in defending the people's rights and the constitutional authorities as the king was taking his seat a frightful musketry discharge resounded at the doors it was the national guards firing intermingled with the insurgents from the foyance terrace on the swiss officers and soldiers forming the royal escort an officer of the national guard probably out of his senses ran in in alarm and only stopped by the bar cried the swiss the swiss are coming they have forced past us for an instant the house believed that the swiss had overcome the outbreak and were coming to recover their master for at the time louis the sixteenth was much more the king to the swiss than to any others with one spontaneous movement the house rose all of a mind and the representatives, spectators, officials, and guards, raising their hands, shouted, Come what may, we vow to live and die, free men! In such an oath the royals could take no part. So they remained seated, as the shout passed like a whirlwind over their heads, from three thousand mouths. The error did not last long, but it was sublime. In another quarter of an hour the cry was, "'The palace is overrun! The insurgents are coming here to take the king!' Thereupon the same men who had sworn to die free in their hatred of royalty rose with the same spontaneity to swear they would defend the king 
to the death. The Swiss Captain Derlay was summoned outside to lay down his arms. "'I serve the king, and not the house,' he said. "'Where is the royal order?' They brought him into the assembly by force. He was black with powder and red with blood. "'Sire,' he said, "'they want me to lay down arms. "'Is it the king's order?' yes said louis hand your weapons to the national guard i do not want such brave men to perish derlay lowered his head with a sigh but he insisted on a written order the king scribbled on a paper the king orders the swiss to lay down their arms and return into barracks this was what voices were crying throughout the Tuileries, on the stairs, and in the rooms and halls. As this order restored some quiet to the house, the speaker rang his bell and called for the debating to be resumed. A member rose and pointed out that an article of the Constitution forbade debates in the King's presence. "'Quite so,' said the King. "'But where are you going to put us?' "'Sire,' said the speaker, "'we can give you the room and box of the logograph, "'which is vacant owing to the sheet having ceased to appear.' "'The ushers hastened to show the party where to go, "'and they had to retrace some of the path they had used to enter. "'What is this on the floor?' asked the queen. "'It looks like blood.' The servants said nothing, for while the spots might be blood, they were ignorant where they came from. Strange to say, the stains grew larger and nearer together as they approached the box. To spare her the sight, the king quickened the pace and opened the box door himself. He bid her enter. The queen sprung forward, but even as she set foot on the sill, she uttered a scream of horror and drew back with her hands covering her eyes. The presence of the blood spots was explained, for a dead body had been placed in the room. It was her almost stepping upon this which had caused her to leap back. "'Bless us,' said the king. "'It is poor Count Charny's body.' In the same tone as he had said to the gory relic on the pike, this is poor Mandar's head. Indeed, the deputies had snatched the body from the cutthroats and ordered it to be taken into the empty room, without the least idea that the royal family would be consigned to this room in the next ten minutes. It was now carried out, and the guests installed. They talked of cleaning up, but the queen shook her head in opposition and was the first to take a place over the bloodstains. No one noticed that she burst her shoelaces and dabbled her foot in the red, still warm blood. Oh, Charny, Charny, she murmured. Why does not my lifeblood ooze out here to the last drop to mingle with yours unto all eternity? 3 p.m. struck. 
the last of her lifeguards was no more. For in and about her palace, nearly a thousand nobles and Swiss had fallen. End of chapter 15 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia